Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Amen. You guys can take a seat, and uh, I'm glad that we're here together. It's good that we're here together, thinking about the things that we're going to be thinking about, saying the things that we're saying, singing these songs that uh, we're singing. And I invite you to open your or uh, copy, your copy of God's Word with me to uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 20. As Blake mentioned earlier, we're looking at verse 15. Uh, you shall not steal. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking he forgot that it was Mother's Day. Uh, on Easter, if you remember, we, we looked at the passage, honor your father and mother. And I'm sure you guys thought that I forgot that it was Easter. And you thought, actually, he could have used that verse today. But now it's Mother's Day and the passage is you shall not steal um, well, I didn't forget it was Mother's Day. I, in fact, I think this rule has a lot to say to mothers. You little thieves. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, two of the things that we're going to meditate on that this command helps us think through is just this idea of contentment, being content, and the idea of respecting other people and who they are and what God has given to them. And obviously, as a mother, with the incredible stewardship that God has given you over your children to raise them and to shape them, uh, to value what God values and to love what God loves, this, this idea of contentment in their lives, that's something that we desperately desire, that our children would learn to be content uh, with who they are and with what God has given them, and that our children would love to respect and love one another. So there's a lot in this passage uh, that I want to unpack with you today, uh, but I do just want to take a, a quick moment since I'm here to wish all the mothers happy Mother's Day. So grateful for you. I'm grateful for the mother of my children, Paige, who's actually not here today because she's going right now to the beach with her mother and her sisters. Uh, pro tip, guys, uh, when your wife has a seven-year-old child, a five-year-old child, and a three-year-old child, give her a break from the kids on Mother's Day and uh, send her away to the beach. But anyway, I'm glad she's down there. She's having a great time. But as a mother, um, obviously, it's a huge responsibility uh, that we bear, that you bear in raising up your children uh, to live a life of contentment and respect. Um, so let's get to work today. Uh, throughout this series, we've been talking about, so we look at these commands, we've been talking about the practical wisdom they teach, we've been talking about the, the, the things that they teach about God's character. We've also been looking at just our, the gospel need that they display. We'll, we'll get to all of those things today, but we're not going to follow that outline. Um, just a very simple outline. First of all, what does it mean to be content? What does it mean to respect others? And then lastly, how do you do this? <laughs> how do you pursue both? What does it mean to be content? Well, the desire to steal uh, flows from a lack of contentment. It flows from just a lack of stillness with where you are. Now, contentment, this Christian idea of contentment, as an American, right, as someone who's always told to be ambitious and to go, go after it, go get it, the idea of contentment is kind of strange. Clearly, we see this idea throughout the Bible. Um, here's just a couple of passages. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Ephesians 4, 11, this is a famous passage about contentment. I'm not speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound to in every circumstance 
But I've learned the, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, the secret of being content, abundance and need. Hebrews 13, five, just another passage. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Um, as God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So it's interesting thinking about this idea of Christian contentment, clearly biblical, clearly something that we should be pursuing, uh, but how do you align that with this other thing that we just learn as Americans, this American ambition? I mean, we are people that are ambitious. We're go-getters. We're not content, right? We're people that pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and go and make something of ourselves. You know, our story, the story that we love, you know, whether you're an American that your ancestors came here on their own will with nothing. I mean, my ancestors, they put everything they owned in a box, got on a boat, came to a place they'd never seen, and tried to get it going, tried to make something happen. Some people came here obviously against their will uh, and were the property of other people. And, and from nothing or even less than nothing, they made something of their life. They made something of themselves. And, and even if this isn't really true of us, even if we're quite privileged people and have been given a lot of opportunities, we like to tell our story this way, right? Like I say, you know what, it was hard. I didn't come from much, didn't have much growing up but I really made it. I really put my nose down. I had ambition, right? This is just a part of who we are. You know, my grandparents, my granddad, and, and, and every man that I know that's, that was my granddad's age, like their favorite song is the song My Way that uh, Frank Sinatra made famous. Paul Anka actually wrote this song, but Frank Sinatra, of course, made it famous. But they love this song because, I mean, my granddad, he, was, he grew up on a farm. He had nothing he said World War II is the greatest thing that ever happened to him. And he broke free of everything that anybody before him had ever done. He moved into a house. He found a wife. He, he, he made a life. And so, you know, they, they love this song. For what is man, what has he got if not himself? Then he is not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. I'm not going to bow down to authority. But the record shows I took the blows. I did what I had to do. I did it my way. Everybody in that generation, they love this song, but this hasn't gone away. I mean, we, we still feel this way. We still like this. The American ambition. You know, you may not like Frank Sinatra, but maybe you like Beyonce. Um, she, wrote, she wrote basically the same song, right? Y'all know this. This is Destiny's Child, but, you know, y'all can fill in the what's if you want to. But I'm a survivor, not going to give up. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to work harder. I'm a survivor. I'm going to make it. I will survive. Keep on surviving. <laughs> this is American ambition, right? I mean, we, this doesn't go away. We, we, we love this. And so how do you take these two kind of seemingly contradictory ideas? I mean, this is something I've thought a lot about. How do you take this, this biblical charge to be content and to truly be content with this kind of urge for ambition or to make it or to go do something with our life. How do these things coexist uh, along next to one another? Well, I, I've mentioned this book before. I love this, this book. Um, I mentioned it, I know, last year when I read it. I actually reread it this week of this little book club that I'm in uh, called Strong and Weak by uh, Andy Crouch. And he talks a lot about it. The word he uses is flourishing. But I actually think you could replace the word, what I think the Bible means by contentment here. And he says that in order to be content or in order to flourish, the word he uses, you, you have to have both high authority, and high vulnerability. Now, this is, this is a strange kind of place to exist. So authority doesn't mean a position of authority. He uses the, 
Here's how he defines the word. He says the capacity for meaningful action, right? This is what we want. We want to make a change. We want to do something. And again, clearly, the Apostle Paul, the same guy that said, hey, be content. I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Clearly, he had the capacity for meaningful action. Clearly, this guy produced things through his life that were meaningful, that were amazing, but he also found contentment. And so I think Crouch would say that you need both authority and a high level of vulnerability. And vulnerability means this. He defines vulnerability as this, um, exposure to meaningful risk. So uh, a high capacity for meaningful action and exposure to meaningful risk. So when most people get authority, most people, when you get authority in life, you achieve something, you get away from risk, right? You reduce risk. You, you, you don't let people in. Uh, you don't want to be woundable in any way. People, when they get authority, they get harder to know. They're more closed off. They stay away from pain and hardships, right? They, they move to the suburbs. They move to a gated community. They get away from anything that might be risky. They stay away from pain and hardship, they don't want to have problems. They, have few, they share fewer secrets, right? Because they have a lot of authority now. They have a lot to risk, and so they want to reduce the risk. But, but Crouch says, and I agree with him here, if that's your life, then you may have authority, but you're controlled by your authority. Whatever, whatever you're doing that's meaningful has dominated who you are. It's become who you are. And you're not willing to take a risk. Your brand or your narrative or your career path has become all-encompassing. You may have authority, but you have no vulnerability. And, you, and if that's true of you, if that's where you are, you really won't be content. Now, on the other side, if you have no authority, if, if you're frozen, if you've been so hurt and so crippled that you have no capacity for meaningful action, you won't, you won't be content either. You'll be depressed. Authority and vulnerability. I think this is the, the, the secret to this desire for contentment along with this ambition that is within us. It's, it's good to have ambition, right? I mean, Paul, as I mentioned, he clearly had ambition. He wanted to plant churches. He wanted to preach the gospel. He wanted to go to Rome. But when things happened to him, when, when that authority was taken away from him, when, when he was shipwrecked, right, when he was put in prison, it didn't wreck him. He wasn't run by his authority. He wasn't run by his ambition. He wasn't ruled by it. When he, was, when he was in prison, what did he do? He just kept doing what he did. He kept praising God. He kept preaching the gospel. He kept about his business that God had called him to do. I think this is such a secret. Have you found this place of contentment where you have authority, but you're also, you're also willing to have meaningful risk in your life? I've mentioned this quote before. Madonna gave this interview for Vanity Fair um, in the height of her career, it's always uh, grabbed me, this quote. And I think this gets at ambition without contentment. She says, I have an iron will. All of my will has always been to conquer some sort of horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell and discover myself as a special human being. But then I get on another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting and I find, a way to, uh, I find a way to get out of, of, that, of myself again, again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though now I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended. And it probably never will. Now I know none of us are Madonna, 
but can anybody identify with this? You've become somebody. You've become that person that you wanted to be. You've, you've achieved that goal and it still doesn't satisfy. And you think that the answer is more authority, more authority, more authority, more authority. Get rid of all weakness. Get rid of all vulnerability. Hide them. Get rid of all vulnerability. But you can't do that. And again, even if you could, it would never satisfy. And, and, and even our best attempts to get rid of our weaknesses, you know, life always gets in the way, doesn't it, of that? You know, Mother's Day is a hard day for people, some people. Being a mom is hard. Uh, and I just want to say, you know, a, a, lot of you, a lot of you women, you know, some of you are in career, some of you are staying at home, that are, that are mothers, both are really hard paths. You know, if you're staying at home as a mom, that's a hard path. Because you know you're really smart, you know you were like second in your class, you know you have all this capacity, and you're like spending all day long cleaning up the same Legos that you have been cleaning up all day long. And you're like, what am I doing with my life? And some of you are in a career, and, and, and it's hard to be a, a mom if you're in that situation. Because you know, you know that there's this responsibility of children that's, that's holding you back from that. Or, you know, that, that's just creating just great stress in your life because you can't quite balance everything. And we, we all have this, men and women. You ever come to that great point in your career where you're getting all this authority and then a parent gets sick and it's on you to take care of them? You know, life gets in the way. Maybe some of you, you know, you're doing so great and, and you still think about it. You didn't get into that college that you were supposed to get into. You were supposed to get in. And that guy got in and he wasn't as smart as you. And you still think about that, and you think, man, if I only had that authority, then I would be happy. Then I would have made it. Life does this. It holds this authority carrot out as if it's going to make us so special, so powerful, and then things come in that ruin it. You know, I, I've been there. I, I was just thinking this week, I, I wanted to be SGA president at Auburn, and I ran for SGA president. And I you know, put my name out there. I was very vulnerable. And went for this, and I said, I'm gonna win, it's gonna be great. Well, it turns out the guy that runs against me, his dad was the president of the Republican Party of the state of Alabama. Like the one time I win, and all these people, uh, one time I you know, was running, and all these people you know, from all over the state, these like professional campaign people come in. Y'all ever, for any of you like Parks and Rec fans, remember when like Jennifer Barkley comes to run Bobby Newport's campaign? That's what it was like, you know. And as sophisticated as my like, group of coyotes that were running the campaign were, we had no chance. But life is full of twists and turns like that and what ifs and tough phone calls. And I just want to say this, in this world that says achieve, 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 and you'll be happy, the real thing is, is if you listen to that drum your entire life, you'll either be exhausted, bitter, or worse. And when things don't work out as the way you plan, you feel like you've gotten a raw deal. And listen, guys, when you feel like you've gotten a raw deal, you'll justify, you'll justify all kinds of things, even theft, even treating people poorly. Even, you will justify treating people in all sorts of horrible ways. So what is the secret to being content? How do you learn how to be content? Well, we'll get there. But first, I want to look at the second point, which is what does it really mean to respect others? And I, I kind of want to get into the law a little bit more with, with this one. I know you're thinking, like, isn't this a sermon on Exodus 20? You know, <laughs> I haven't really gotten into that. Well, I am. I'm talking about it. We're getting to it. 
So what does it mean to respect others? Well, I said that not stealing you know, has, has everything to do with being content and respecting others. Now, most Christians, you read, as you read the Ten Commandments, you come to this one, you come to the Eighth Commandment, and you say, oh, not stealing? I got this. I've never stolen. In fact, I looked at two polls this week. One poll said 75% of Christians think they've never stolen anything. Another poll said that 90% of Christians think they've never stolen anything. So I know y'all walked in, you realized the passage today, you might have been looking around and be like, somebody in here is going to get a lot out of this. I look good on Mother's Day. But I think we need to look at this passage in a little bit more holistic way. Uh, we're, we're reading in our community groups Kevin DeYoung's book on the Ten Commandments, and he actually mentions two uh, helpful uh, catechism. If you're not familiar, catechisms are they're tools that you teach theology to children with is really what they were made for, but they're like a question and answer uh, kind of tool. And so the Heidelberg Catechism, the, actually the 110th question, says, what does God forbid in the eighth command? And here's uh, the answer. It's a helpful answer. It says, God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, punishable by law, but in God's sight, theft also includes, and I think this is so helpful, we'll come back to this, cheating and swindling our neighbor by schemes made to appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, he forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. Just a couple of applications here. Obviously, theft includes like what you think of as theft, shoplifting, taking someone else's property. But it also includes other kinds of theft, theft of life. You know, the Eighth Commandment forbids slavery. Uh, You are stealing a man or a woman's life. In fact, the the very next chapter uh, talks about this. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him. And anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. It was punishable by death. The theft of ideas, right? What about plagiarism? Taking credit for ideas that weren't your own. The theft of time. And this one pretty much gets all of us. What about wasting time at work? Or doing something that's not productive with your time? Laziness. You know, I'm not going to get into the last part of the Heidelberg Catechism here, but how about this? It says pointless squandering of God's gifts. You know, has God given you a gift that you're not using? What about the theft of, a cr- of credibility, discrediting your rival, dis- discrediting someone that you may be against in a dishonest way? And of course, this is a big one, theft from God. How many of us steal God's glory by worshiping lesser things? How many of us fail to be generous to God and to his kingdom work? I mean, the Bible describes this as robbing God, stealing from God. So there's a lot of applications from this command just beyond shoplifting. But here's where the Heidelberg uh, catechism to me is most helpful. I love this phrase. Look at this phrase in the middle. It says, but in God's sight, theft also includes cheating and swindling our neighbor by schemes made to appear legitimate. And this really gets to the heart of the matter. God cares so much about the heart this, this, this greedy heart that appears to be honest, that appears to be genuine, that appears to be legitimate, yet is really a thief. I, God would rather you just be a thief, I think, and be known for it than to appear legitimate, to appear honest. The, the people that Jesus, his greatest rivals, the people that he was most critical of were the Pharisees. Remember, what did he say of them? He says, outside, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful, 
You have a beautiful appearance, but inwardly, you are unclean. Inwardly, you're rotting bones. A few applications here for Christians. I don't want to be this, where my inside and my outside don't match up, or have the outward appearance of something that is generous or legitimate, but inside I am cheating you or swindling you. So how do you avoid this? Well, a couple of things. First of all, be open. And what I mean by this is, you know, our, our finances, even in areas of business where we're charging people, handling other people, so often these are kind of closed off. You know, Jesus has this very interesting passage in the Sermon on the Mount. So he gives these two kind of statements, these famous statements about generosity or about uh, not being greedy. You know, the, the first one is he says, you know, you can't store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, rather store for yourself treasures in heaven you know, that passage. And then like a little later, he has this other pretty famous passage that says, you can't serve both God and money, right? You'll you'll either serve the one or you'll serve the other. You can't have two masters. But in the middle of those two passages, kind of about money, about wealth, about greed, there's this weird passage about your eye. It, It says this, it says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What does this passage have to do with anything? Now keep in mind, again, it's, it's between two passages about greed and money. And, and what I think that Jesus is saying here, greed is one of those things that hangs out in the darkness, There are a lot of people that I believe that are greedy and there's no light to shine. So the the application is just be open. Who's looking in? Who's questioning the way you charge people? Who's questioning what you do with your money? Who's questioning your generosity? Is that totally closed off from the world? Sin only grows in darkness and greed is one of these. Theft is a secret sin. It's always disguised. It's always in darkness. It's always a quiet sin. The eye is the lamp of the body. And if there's no eye looking in, then the whole body is dark. So seek about accountability in this. You don't want to be a thief. You don't want to be treating people in a swindling kind of way with the appearance of legitimacy. Who's questioning this in your life? And then the second thing is pay fairly. And you're like, what do you mean by this? And I'll explain You know, for those of you that are in in business leadership kind of positions, I want you to be wise. I want you to be frugal. But I think Christians, above anyone else, should be fair and generous. Christians should be known for our generosity. Now, this may sound counterintuitive for me to say, but but hear me out here. You know, I've heard of Christians being very cheap, very harsh in their business, hard to work for. You know, their people, their people don't ever feel rewarded. Their people don't feel like they're commended. The people don't feel like they're really taken care of. And, and the Christian business owner will justify it because he gives a lot of money away. He gives a lot of money to Christian ministry. Now, of course, I want you to give money to Christian ministry. That's a part of the heart of God. But my goal is a pastor. I want you to hear this. My goal as a pastor is for you guys to be good priests out there. I want you guys to be lights when you scatter, to be known as representatives of Christ when, not just in here, but out there too. What good does it do you to be known well for your generosity in here, but be a total jerk and swindler out there? 
That does the kingdom of God zero good. That does the kingdom of God moving forward zero good. So pay fairly. Be generous. And again, I'm not saying that you know, we, we should be orderly. We should be shrewd. As a manager, you have to make hard decisions. So please don't mishear this. But lead with generosity. Lead with a generous heart. Realize your outward-facing ministry. When you scatter from here, realize that you're scattering as a chosen race, as a royal priesthood, as someone that God calls his own so that you can proclaim the mysteries of God, how, how you've been transferred from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. Now, the next uh, question, actually, in the Heidelberg Catechism, I think is very helpful for this. So we looked at question 110. This is question 111. What does God require of you in this command? And I think this is, this is really the essence of the Eighth Commandment. That whatever I do, I can do for my neighbor's good. That I treat others as I would like them to treat me, and that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. This is the posture of our hearts. If you want to obey this command, let this be the posture of our heart. That whatever I do, I'm trying to do for my neighbor's good. I'm trying to treat others as I would want to be treated, and I'm working faithfully so I may share with those in need. Is this, is this our posture toward people? Is this our outward-facing posture? Do you consider others better than yourself? You know, in the ancient community, the righteous man was the one who would sacrifice himself for the sake of the community. The wicked man was the one that would sacrifice the community for the sake of himself. What's more true of you and how you live and how you deal with people? Are you content enough where you are? Do you respect others enough to not steal from them? Are you doing whatever you can to work for their good? Now, our problem is this, the answer to that question for all of us is no. <laughs> We're not content with where we are. We don't consider others better than ourselves. In fact, we consider ourselves, we have to be very honest, the most important person in the room today. And if that is your posture, if that's our posture, we will develop greedy hearts, always looking to manipulate situations to work for our good always looking at people as people that we can manipulate to work for our good rather than being people that, that give ourselves to work for the sake of others. People steal when they believe that someone has something that they should have. So it could be they have so much of that and I don't have any of that and I should have some. So I'm, gonna, I'm justified. They have so much of that, they're not gonna miss it. I can do more good with it than they can do anyway. They have that and I don't have that, but I'm as smart as they are. I'm as talented as they are. They won't miss it if I take some. At the end of the day, we steal when we don't trust God with what he has given to us and when we don't trust God with what he has given to others. But how do we change this? How do we change this? I mean, we have been doing this for a long time. In one way or another, you know, theft is kind of the first sin, right? Eve and Adam stole from God. They took something that wasn't theirs. They took something that they shouldn't have had. We have been doing this a long, long time, manipulating situations for our good. So how do we change this? Which brings me to the final point here. How do we pursue both? How do you pursue real contentment? How do you pursue real respect and love for others? You know, St. Augustine had this book um, called Confessions. 
And if you've never read Confessions, you, you really should. It's, um, it was written 1,600 years ago, more than that. And it's basically this guy's personal journal. Imagine like a personal journal written 1,600 years ago in Africa, in Latin. It's done a lot for my faith, actually, because I read it, and I'm like, man, this guy is experiencing God in kind of some of the same ways. I feel like I'm reading my own journal here. I, you know, in, in some of the same ways that I experience in God, this guy is having experiences with the Lord, and yet he was written that hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of years ago in a different language, in a different place. But he, uh, there's this famous scene where he steals these pears, it's one of the famous scenes in the book. He talks about stealing pears. And he reflects on that. He's very remorseful in that. But, but he has this long passage. I was going to read the passage, but let me just kind of paraphrase it for you. He basically says, you know, there are beautiful things in this world. There are things that really delight our hearts and delight our eyes. And there's beautiful gifts in this world. Things like having authority. You know, there's something about having authority or being in a position of authority where people listen to you and do what you say that feels good. It feels right. And he talks about relationships. He says, even our relationships, our friendships, they're, they're reflective of something good. There is a good about them. But he says that, that all of these things, all of these things become sin when they capture our delight more than God. When they capture our heart deeper than God. Sin is committed, he says, for the sake of these things and others when, in consequence of an immoderate urge toward these things. You hear that? A too strong an urge toward these things, which are at the bottom end of the scale of good. So in the consequence of a moderate urge, a wrongful urge toward these things, which are at the bottom end of the scale of good, we forsake our urge toward God. We forsake our, or, or, we abandon higher and supreme goods. That is you, Lord God, and your truth and your Law. You see what he's saying here? He's saying there's beautiful things in the world that we can recognize, that we can have ambition for, but when we forsake delighting in God, when we forsake delighting in God for these lesser things, these things that are at the bottom end of the scale of good, they will never satisfy. They will always leave you wanting more. They are small compared to knowing God. They're small compared to delighting in God. Earlier in the book, of course, this is like the, the thesis of the book. Augustine says, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You see, all of us, we're on a quest, if we have to be honest, a quest to be important, to be strong, to be wealthy, to have might. If I could just have a little bit more, then I'd be happy. If I could have this, that would do it for me. And so we prod and we cut and we move along the way. Because if I could just get there, it'll be so worth it. And it never is. It always ends up, it's a good thing, but it's at the bottom end of the scale of good. And we always say, well, there must be something higher on the scale. There must be something better on the scale. And what Augustine is saying here is, no, unless you find your delight in God, unless you're delighting in God who is the greatest good, then You'll never be satisfied. You'll never rest. Your soul was made to rest in him. He is the weightiest anchor. He is meant to be your greatest delight. Have you rested in him? Are you delighting in him? You know, I get 40 minutes a week to try to convince you guys to delight in God. And you're gonna leave here and 
everything else in the world is gonna say, delight in me, I'll make you happy, I'll give you rest, I'll give you peace, I'll give you authority. And it always over-promises and under-delivers. Because here's the truth, you know the message of the world, you know what the world really wants from you? The world promises you so much, but you know the world really wants from you? The world, of course, wants more out of you, it wants to take more away from you than it's ever going to give you. If you think that your job is like this great thing that like wants to give you more than it's getting out of you, you're wrong. Your job wants to get a good deal with you. If you think that other people, in large part, actually want to give you more than they want out of you, you're wrong. No, people, we, we have this marketplace mentality wherever we go. And if that's the case, if that's the world that we live in, you will feel spent and exhausted, which is the way most people feel. But see, only God gives in such a way that not only does he give us more than we could give him back, he gives us so much that we could never repay him. One of my favorite passages, you know, Jesus who had everything. I mean, Jesus had everything. Perfect peace with God. Jesus owns the cosmos. It's all his. You know, Paul, when he's urging the Corinthians to be generous, he says this, you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ who though he was rich, and again, Jesus was rich. There's no more, if you have everything, I mean, think about the richest person you know. They have a little bit of accumulated wealth on one planet in one solar system in one galaxy in the huge universe, okay? They have nothing. Jesus owns the cosmos. It's all his. Total wealth, total capacity, total power. And Paul says, hey, you know the grace of Jesus, the one who has everything? Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. Though he owned the cosmos, for your sake, Jesus became poor. You know, he literally became poor. He came to earth and lived in a poor family. But he became ultimately poor. What Paul's talking about here is he became ultimately poor on the cross. Jesus became ultimately poor on the cross. There's never been greater wealth or greater poverty. There's never been greater wealth than Jesus has. Everything is his. There's never been greater poverty than what Jesus experienced on the cross because he took on, on the cross, the debt for all of our sin. And he faced the just wrath of God. He, he, he paid the price that we owed to an eternal God, he paid an eternal price. There's never been greater riches. There's never been greater poverty. Jesus, for your sake, became poor. And the end of that verse is so that you could be rich in him. And what does it mean to be rich in Jesus? And here's, here's what it means. You know, we, we get so calloused over this, in, if for those of us that have been around church culture for a while. But it means that if you know Christ, if you're in Christ, then you can know God that you can know God. Again, we're so callous over that. Well, I know God, I know God. Well, do you? No, what Jesus is saying is through me, through what I've done for you, I have given you an invitation to actually know God. And that is the weightiest thing that we could ever have, a knowledge of God, a relationship with God. What do you have that is more valuable than that? What do you have that's weightier than that? What has captured your heart that is not that? And, and, and what else do you need if you have that? You know, at the end of the day, look, I'm just a simple guy from Alabama. I'm never gonna achieve much. I'm never gonna have a lot of wealth. I'm probably never gonna have a lot of recognition. But I know God. 
And if I know him, I know that I'll never die. I know that I have a life secure with him and his kingdom forever. This is why Paul says, I consider everything loss for the sake of knowing Christ. This is why Isaac Watts said, when I survey the cross, when I think about what Jesus did for me, that the richest person ever became the poorest person ever for my sake, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain is a loss. Are you delighting in God? Are you resting in the fact that God delights in you, that Jesus became poor so that you could be rich in him? And look, here's the deal, when that happens, when you, to quote Isaac Watts, survey the cross, when you, you know, understand as Paul, when you, in light of what this gospel, in light of what God's done for me, when, when you let this gospel fill your soul, I just want you to hear this, you will have so much contentment, you'll have so much poise, you'll have so much peace. You'll be able to respect one another because you won't see them as rivals, as people trying to take things away from you. you know, you'll see them as brothers, you'll see them as friends. You, you'll be able to love because you have been so loved. You'll be able to give because God has given so much to you. You'll have so much poise and peace and security. And look, I'm not saying that when bad things happen, it won't be hard. And when good things happen, it won't be great. The gospel doesn't promise to make us numb. Don't hear me saying that. It promises to give us peace. It promises to give us courage and rest and contentment in life. Because if we know God, then we have everything. If we know God, then we have rest, then we have peace. You know, contentment and rest, these are things that every mother would wanna give their child. Respect for others, but they're things that God has given us in Christ. So let's look to him as we pray. Father, I pray that um, you would turn our hearts now away from lesser things, uh, that this would be a moment of worship and reflection, that, they would, that we would rest in you, that we would rest in you. And rest in this, that, that for our sake, Jesus, even though he was rich, he became poor. So that in him, we might become rich, rich in you, Lord. What greater treasure, what greater anchor could we hold to than than this, that we can know God. So Lord, do this work in our lives. I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041 or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.